You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi, good morning to you on a Tuesday morning. Actually, it looks like a decent start outside. At least it's dry in comparison to yesterday. My name is Jake Query. Kevin Bowen here as well. It is Kevin and Query. 93.5, 107.5. The Fan. Pacers returning back home tonight. Trying to get on the right side of things after what has been obviously an ugly stretch. No Tyrese Halliburton, but a seven-game skid. Chicago, the opponent. Um, but the other thing, I guess, Kevin, when you look at the Pacers season right now, in addition to simply looking at X's and O's, W's and L's, you're also looking at roster, and Miles Turner comes in to play big time. Yeah, and again, February 9th, the trade deadline. So that is two weeks from Thursday. You know, it's been reported now, I think, for several weeks that the Pacers and Miles Turner have begun contract extension negotiations. I think the most recent report is the Turner camp turned down the Pacers' offer. Um, again, Miles has changed agents here lately. Um, he's never been a free agent in the NBA, but that could happen um, this offseason. Um, Jake, I think we have to look a little bit big picture if the Pacers do extend Turner and what that does to this rebuild. Um, if you're going to extend Turner, the pros and cons of it. The pros of it, you continue to have one of the top rim protectors in the NBA. Your defense, which honestly struggles at times when Turner's on the floor, um, wouldn't be kind of in this laughing stock of the league. You would stabilize a position that I would say one of the few disappointing aspects to this Pacers season has been the development of Isaiah Jackson, Jalen Smith, and Goga, if you want to throw Goga into that group. You haven't gotten a lot out of those backup young guys that you're like, oh yeah, you know? That's Andrew Nimhard promise, or right. you know, someone that has shown a little Aaron Neesmith, someone that's shown a little bit more in a guard or a wing. So I think those are the pros. The cons of it, you're paying Turner a very, very high bill at a position that championship teams just don't value at all. Um Turner would be the highest paid player on the team. That wouldn't last very long. Halliburton will eclipse him when he gets his extension. But Turner would be the second highest paid player, Jake. For the Pacers, and that would likely be the case for several years. I looked up last night these names, and I'll first name them for you and then explain. Clay Thompson, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant. Okay. Probably five Hall of Famers. Probably five first ballot, if that's such a thing, in the NBA. Jake, those are the second highest paid players in the last five championship teams. Don't think Miles Turner falls into that category. I think the Pacers' goal in a rebuild, when you haven't done it in three decades, should be to swing for the fences. And using that money that you'd give to Turner and having flexibility to take on trades, i.e. Buddy Heald's contract, what we saw them do last February, and just being a little bit more of a, we can pivot and we can um, be able to involve ourselves in other talks around the league to acquire a wing, which to me, a wing is more important than acquiring a big. I think it's proven in this league. Um, and you see it, like Nick Claxton, he's a leading shot blocker in the NBA. It's not like he was, you know, spent a high draft pick. Brooklyn did not spend a high draft pick on him. Walker Kessler's had a really nice rookie season. That was not some lottery pick either. That's the path that I would take in moving forward at the center position because I think if you can hit on a wing and kind of patchwork center, that is your best chance to trying to get this franchise back to the Paul George, David West era where you were making multiple Eastern Conference Finals runs as opposed to what we saw in the Oladipo era where it was kind of the four or five seed as a ceiling. When we talked about the Colts, I had said that my concern about the Colts was that their best players, Shaquille Leonard, Jonathan Taylor, Quentin Nelson, that they were in positions or that they had put their best players in the positions that were of the least relevance in a transitioning away from that style in the NFL and that it was the equivalent of having Anthony Mason, Sam Cassell, and like Patrick Ewing as your three best NBA players today. So therefore, it would be probably inconsistent of me 
to champion the cause of re-signing Miles Turner because, to your point, the center position is devalued. It is probably the guard or running back position in the NFL today. Except, Kevin Pritchard had a very definitive intrigue and idea and envisioned game plan about the way this Pacers team was built that was predicated on how Miles Turner would respond to the interior passing, the lob passing, and the pacing set by Tyrese Halliburton. And they wanted to see, and Kevin Pritchard more than anything else wanted to see, how is Miles going to shoot the ball this year? Now that Sabonis is gone, what's going to happen with Miles Turner in terms of his shooting? When Domas Sabonis, who's a wonderful talent, was here, the Pacers charted very specifically what happened in terms of number of people that touched the ball in half-court sets when Sabonis was on the floor versus when Turner was on the floor. And what they established was, or determined was, that when Turner was on the floor, the ball movement was was much more fluid. And in that capacity that Turner, even though he was a center defensively, that offensively he was more of like a wing. And so they basically said, if we were to move Sabonis to open things up on our half-court offensive sets, then what are we going to get out of him defensively? And he has responded in the fact that I think his rim protection and his facilitation towards pacing the opposite direction has been probably better than it's been in a long time. So he has responded, I think, very well and is a very important piece towards Halliburton, all those, you know, Nimhard, Neesmith. The other thing that Turner does that I think is really important, Kevin, defensively speaking, you still are a team, and, and to your point, which is a good one, to your point, this maybe becomes a little bit nullified if you were able to get yourself an additional wing defender. But for right now, you have Aaron Neesmith, who is growing and developing as a wing on the defensive side of the ball and looks to be a good wing defender, but still has room to grow. And then you have like Nimhard or Matherin that have some a lot of growth to do defensively in the backcourt. Not saying they don't that they're not good defenders, but they're not the full length size of like a Paul George defender. So if you have guys that are going that have the the potential to be beaten on the wings, then it becomes even more important to have that final rim protection. In other words, what I'm getting at long-winded and circuitously here is Miles Turner to me is in a unique situation because his value to the Indiana Pacers is likely higher than his value elsewhere in the league. And I think that other teams are going to look at the style of play and the way that Indiana's built and they're going to say, look, Miles Turner's a good player for Indiana and he could be a good player for us, but we ain't going to pay him what Indiana's going to pay him. So I think in the end, he ends up staying here, quite frankly. Because you think I, he signs an extension the next two weeks? I do. And I and and I am in agreement with you that if he does not, yeah, you have to. L- let me rephrase that, Kevin. I don't know whether he will sign it here or not. And I have all the respect in the world for guys. I, Miles Turner's a native of the Dallas area. If Miles Turner gets an opportunity to go play for the Mavericks or even the Rockets or the Spurs, and he wants to be close to home, I oh sure. I mean, the Pacers just offered I, DeAndre in the max. I mean, Miles mean, Turner earned, has earned the right to experience free agency. Totally. So, so my point being. Um, do I think he's going to resign here? I, I, I actually am not qualified to answer that because I don't know his thinking there or what he's going to get offered. But I do think that, yes, Indiana will prioritize signing him over trying to then trade him. And again, this is a mute point, Jake, if he doesn't sign that extension because, you know, as I've said all along, then you have to trade him. I would agree with that. Obviously, you've got to get something at that point. I just would have hesitancy. And again, I can fully acknowledge, I think Turner is a very important piece to what the Pacers have right now. I just don't like pain centers that have had some injury history into their 30s, the amount of money that you would spend on Miles Turner, the amount of money that is, you know, in a similar way to what Durant and Kawhi and Anthony Davis and Clay Thompson have gotten on these championship teams in recent years. I get that part of that is just how the cap go, you know, goes up and guys that have been in the league for as long as Turner have some merit to this contract. But I look at center as one of the more easily replaceable positions. Are you going to able to find a center that blocks shots at the level he does and shoots 40% from three or whatever his percentage is? No. But can you make up for it 
in other areas. Because I think you, know, you, you have to remind yourself, if you give Turner this this money and then you extend Halliburton, you're pretty much done from a cap space standpoint. And I know when people hear cap space, they think free agency. But the reason why you're able to pull off the Halliburton, Buddy Heald, Sabonis, Holiday, Justin Holiday trade was because you were in a great cap situation as well. So if you're going to commit to Turner, I just think we need to remind ourselves, you've pretty much committed to this current core. Maybe you hit on a late lottery pick coming up in 2023, but that's really it for what you have from a core standpoint. So are you betting on this group right now to be your championship group for the next five years? I'm not willing to bet on that. You know, realistically, on this show, you're Halliburton and I'm Miles Turner. You're, you're the young, upstart, multi-talented guy, and I'm the veteran that 50% of our audience tolerates and the other 50% has stunned them still here. <laughs> right? Isn't that right? <laughs> we can debate those percentages during the break, maybe. <laughs> the latest on the Colts head coaching search, pretty quiet start to the week. I think that's kind of the expectation, unless the Colts want to go with second interviews. From uh, guys that are out of the playoffs. Tom Pelissero earlier today mentioned this report for Dan Quinn. The Cardinals are flying in Dan Quinn tonight for a second interview for their head coaching job. Quinn also is a top candidate for the Broncos and the Colts who want to bring him in later this week. So, Jake, I think that is something to keep in mind. Do you see coveted candidates, and I think Quinn, D'Amico Ryan, Sean Payton, those would qualify as that. They can kind of control some of this. And if they start to be a finalist in a certain area or with a certain franchise, do we see other teams panic a little bit and start to get some dominoes to fall? So um, that'll be something to keep an eye on. Talk more about the Colts head coaching search. Joel A. Erickson joins us here. From the Indianapolis Star. Joel, good morning. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going great. Um, good luck with your kids in the snow tomorrow. <laughs> are, are we rooting for yeah, a snow day in the Erickson household or no? We need we need no we need no full snow day. They, they can be delayed. We don't we don't need the full snow day for we don't want the flex day to get uh get taken up it's a great uh, point. for HSE schools. Forgot yep. about the old flex day. What where, where do they slot uh, that? Like in the springtime somewhere? No, it's like right in February, which if the Colts uh, get their coaching search done by towards the end, by the middle of February, I'd actually have time oh, off. Oh, this thing's so. going into July, man. I, I mean, <laughs> I know it's Indy 500 week, but later today, the Colts are announcing their final two. Be sure to call in 800-999 if you want Jeff Saturday. I, I mean, that's what it feels like to me, Joel. I'm becoming more and more cynical by the day. Joel, are, are you surprised by how things have unfolded here two weeks in, whether it's the amount of names. Um, I think Chris Ballard kind of warned us patience would be preached. And I mentioned this earlier. He interviewed five candidates in 2018 and hired Josh McDaniels. If he was interviewing five candidates right now and made a hire, I think people would be absolutely ripping him for doing the same thing he did in 2018. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think, you know, what's about Ballard telegraphed all this to us, I think. He, he said, because he said it's going to be a wide ranging search, doesn't matter offense or defense. Uh, he said the thing, but I don't care if this goes till mid February. We're going to be patient. We're going to take our time. We're going to get it right. Uh, so, from from what he told us in his press conference, it's gone pretty much that way so far. Joel, I'm going to give you multiple choice here. Okay, I'll try to make it as concise as possible. A. Chris Ballard is publicly doing a vast search. Because he wants to do everything he can to prohibit Jim Irsay from hiring Jeff Saturday. B, Chris Ballard is doing an exhaustive, long-form search because he knows Jeff Saturday is going to be hired and he wants to at least make the appearance that they did a long search. C, none of the above. Uh, so, on B, I keep seeing that... Um Floated as a possibility, you know, if you, you tweet out an interview or whatever, fans will say, you know, they're just doing this to to cover their tracks for when they hire Saturday. I I don't think that would actually work. If if that's what they're if that's if that is in fact what they're trying to do, I think I don't think it would work. I, I think that the reaction, regardless, it would almost make it worse. Maybe 
um, in terms of the reaction with people saying, hey, you brought all these guys in for interviews, and then you gave them sham interviews to hire the guy you were going to hire in the first place. I don't think that would work at all, actually. So, uh, A seems like the most likely version to me, because I, I think Chris is smart enough to understand how that would be perceived. Um, now, I, obviously, they could still go with him, but I, I don't think... I don't think them interviewing a bunch of people is going to help the reaction uh, in any way, shape, or form, either nationally or locally, uh, if they hire Jeff Saturday. Do you think it's unusual, though, that... And I get it. And, and I, I can appreciate the transparency because they've taken the, the, the meat out of the hands of the speculative. My sources tell me this person's being interviewed and whatever else. So they're being transparent. Kudos to them for that. I guess we should appreciate that from a media perspective. However, do you find it unusual that Chris Ballard would go through this entire process to gen- then just hand over and let Jim Irsay make the pick? Um... No, I mean, ultimately, technically, the owner is going to make the pick anyway because it's one of the three. Ursay has said before he thinks it's it's his, you know, top. His, his job is to handle the top three positions, uh, the three pillars, the, you know, coach, quarterback, and GM. Um, it It is probably a little bit. It, usually when you make that decision, though, and you hand it over, the GM is expecting that his pick is going to uh, get greenlit. So... That's that. I think is the most interesting piece of this to me is uh, is this going to go the way it would go in most NFL cities where the GM's pick is is probably going to get greenlit, or is it going to go the way we've wondered if it's going to go, where it's Ballard does a lot of work and recommends somebody, and then Ursa hires who he wants to hire. He's Joel Erickson for the Apple Star. He's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. How about this from Brian here? Jake, I recently found out that Joel's wife is my son's kindergarten teacher. She's good people. No, oh, okay. That's cool. Uh, Mrs. Erickson running a great classroom there in the HSC school district. So There we go. I yeah. like that. Yeah. I like sh- that. Shout out there. Thank you for sharing that, Brian. Uh, if she's anything like her husband, I can only uh, assume she is good people. Um, this might sound like a ludicrous statement to make, but it's Jim Mercer, so I don't think it's that ludicrous, Joel. Do you think Jim Mercer is paying attention to social media? And seize the venom towards Jeff Saturday. I I thought that he was paying attention towards social media during the season. I thought I, I felt like some of the stuff that he was saying Boy, that, was directed. Yeah, that tweet after the Raiders game. Yeah, was directed was directed directly at social media. Um, and I, I mean, he never referenced like Twitter or anything like that. But like you said, the tweet after the Raiders game, some of the other. Some of the stuff he said in the press conference felt like it was direct responses to stuff I've been seeing uh, on social media. And if if he is paying attention to it, I I think like like you said, you you have to know that the fan base would not be excited about that. Um, you know, uh, one of the Colts, uh, well, the, you know, there, there's lots of Colts fans who are. We have pretty big Twitter followings, and one of them is uh, Vivi Jones, the guy named Cannon, who's a pretty good dude. And he tweeted a poll last weekend, uh, you know, when it was basically who do you, who do you want as a Colts fan, as as coach, Jeff Saturday, or anybody else? I think it was like ninety-two to eight against, ninety-two percent to eight percent against. And and I feel like that if you look at like when they tweeted out the interview and all the replies to it, I, I think it would be surprising to me if they didn't know how the fans feel about it at this point because the, the replies to that tweet was it was like 25 it felt like 25 to 1 again uh making that higher so it i do think that they probably have to know something about the way the fan base is feeling at least the way we're seeing it play out on social media Joel, I think we asked you this a couple weeks ago, and again, Joel Erickson is with us from the Indianapolis Star, and now that it's played out that Sean Payton has interviewed with four of the five teams that have an opening, he has not interviewed with Indianapolis, is that Sean Payton balking at the Colts, considering his public comments about stability and ownership in front office, or do you think it's the Colts having hesitation about giving up whatever draft pick they would need to for Sean Payton? So I've, I've poked around on this. Obviously, I used to cover the Saints in New Orleans. I've poked around on this, and, and it's kind of hard to pin down. With it. 
Peyton, the ownership thing with Peyton is, is that's not lip service. He really does mean that. And he has, uh, it has influenced his decisions in the past with what he believe, what he thinks about the ownership group. So I, I definitely think that that's, there's, there's, you know, weight behind the words of what he says. And then obviously the other thing he said was when he went on the Colin Cowherd thing, he thought it would be a mid to late round first, uh, first round pick. The Colts, obviously their pick is the fourth pick in the draft. Um, I don't know that there's, gosh, maybe any coach that I would trade a pick that I could get a franchise quarterback for. Um, and I, I think the Saints uh, do want to get at least a first-round pick out of this. So uh, I, I, I could be either one, and I was, I've never been able to pin down exactly quite which one it is. Or if it's a combination of both. Uh, it could be a combination of both things as they went through the as they went through the, the initial process, um, Peyton could have told the Saints, hey, I, you know, hold them up for a ransom, and then they did, and the Colts were like, I don't want to pay that. So, um, but it is interesting, because it is four of the five, uh, and, you know, my, my friend Nick Underhill, who's uh, the guy on the Saints beat, reported that all five teams inquired. So the Colts definitely inquired, and it just never went beyond that, uh, which is interesting. Joel, do you believe that there's the possibility that of the openings in the NFL that the Indianapolis Colts are lower on a coach who has some flexibility of where he goes? That, In other words, if a coach is looking at multiple options, you're Dan Quinn, you've got Arizona, you've got Denver, you've got Indianapolis – do you think there's the possibility that Indianapolis slots lower because of unreasonable expectation from the owner as to how close the franchise is to being competitive? Uh, I think I think that's definitely possible. I mean, it's definitely possible, and I think there's some other things, that the other factors that could push those other jobs up. I mean, Denver, uh, you have a quarterback who played terribly last year, but it's, it's also a quarterback who's you know been a top-eight quarterback before in the league. Plus, they have very, very deep-pocketed owners uh, who are willing to do just about whatever it takes uh, in their new ownership. Arizona's got a quarterback. Houston has a ton of draft capital. Um, and uh, Carolina also has incredibly deep pockets uh, in the ownership group. And so um, I do think that based on what we know, depending on – you know, and you know, we, we we haven't had any reports about what the what the Colts are offering their their head coach. Obviously, Frank Reich, based on what we know of what he was getting paid, they have they have the ability to pay a head coach um, a significant contract. But yeah, I, I do think that there are reasons that it 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 looks like that you would maybe put them as fifth or fourth on the list, and probably fifth. Although Carolina Carolina's quarterback situation would scare me. Um, but it hasn't seemed to scare off coaching candidates. Again, he's Joel A. Erickson from the Indianapolis Star. Not only does he cover the Colts, but he's married to an extremely impressive kindergarten teacher in the HSC school <laughs> district. We learned that from Brian this morning, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, again, Joel is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. All right, Joel, 13 candidates. I want to say six offense, five defense. Throw Jeff Saturday, I guess, on offense maybe. Um Bubba Ventrone and Rich Passaccia, the two special teams coordinators. Give me an offensive candidate and a defensive candidate that stands out for you. Uh, Quinn, and I'm going to give you two defensive candidates right off the bat. Uh, Quinn and uh, and Raheem Morris stand out to me because they're the ones who've got experience in the role. Um, the only candidates that have yeah. coaching experience. Who have who have the full full off season coaching experience uh, in the role, and that's that, that's interesting because sometimes you know sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you end up uh, Dan Quinn got undone a little bit in Atlanta because they could never quite get the defensive talent he needed. I feel like the Colts' defensive talent is in a pretty good place, um, but I, I, I obviously he's very highly respected. I mean. I think before he even interviewed with Denver, people were like, that might be the guy if they don't get Peyton. Uh, Raheem Morris has been in the McVay system now for a while, which means he had access to all of those uh, offensive coordinators and coaches that run that system that makes life easy on quarterbacks and is probably a good thing for a rookie to play in. And then on offense, uh, 
Uh, Shane Steichen is interesting to me because he's he's a little bit of a continuation for this franchise because he comes from uh, Frank Reich's coaching tree, obviously. Uh, both both having coached with Frank and and now coaching with Nick Sirianni, and then and then the other one that's interesting, and I don't and you don't know a ton about him, is just Brian Callahan's story is interesting to me. It was just looking him up in Cincinnati, like he's got the famous dad, he's the one of the great offensive line coaches of all time. And uh, he's on he's on record as saying he never wanted to use that, and so he's never worked with his dad. It's just interesting, just interesting in a business where there's lots of father son coaching combos, and usually their their paths cross at one point or the other, especially early in the younger one's coaching career, and it's never happened for him. That's that's interesting to me. Um, plus, obviously, the work with Burrow, which we've we've all seen how good Burrow is. Yeah, and Burrow is pretty darn good coming out of college. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from him, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, you're fair. That's I mean, fair. you know, that. let me let me read you something. Joel A. Erickson is our guest, Indianapolis Stars, where you can read his work. He's on the Payless Sickers hotline. To be fair to Jeff Saturday, I, I guess to provide both sides of the coin, I want to read you something, Joel, and I want you to respond to it. But this was just sent to me by James. As a Colts fan, I want Jeff Saturday to have a full season with an experienced play caller. He wasn't afraid to call out the offensive line for not protecting their quarterback. I don't really care who media or others think should be the coach. He should be given a fair shake. Is that a fair statement? I, I, my, my thing has always been that he, he did get a fair shake, and it's not from me or the media saying it. It's from him saying it and from the owner saying it and Jim Irsay said again you know it's a, it's a good reminder when he had the opening press conference we saw them going down and I we had to do something to stop it and that's that was the re, that was one of the reasons given for hiring Jeff Saturday Saturday said over and over again I'm being judged on W's and L's here that's all I care about every decision he made he said was about was about wins and so it's it's not us I don't think it's us in the media focusing unduly on on his record. It's it's us holding them to the standard that they set for themselves. And Joel A. Erickson is with us here from the Indianapolis Star. Joel, I think one thing that Jim Irsay and Chris Ballard do align on in this search is wanting the type of personality that Jeff Saturday has in a little bit more... You know, it doesn't have to be crazy fire and brimstone, but just a little bit more of that than maybe Frank Reich was offering. And I know that has to come off as sounding like a shot at Frank Reich. It's typically just how people operate with hires. You typically hire the 180 from the previous guy. I mean, the the Pacers certainly followed that script in going from Nate McMillan to Nate Nate Bjorkren to Rick Carlisle. Um, so I assume the Colts would do the same thing. Given that, given a little bit more, whatever, public accountability, fire and brimstone, however you want to call it, which candidates from what you know would kind of fit that script? Uh, so D'Amico Ryans, uh, I know when they were asking him about his his uh, evolution as a coach, uh, they were kind of, the, the, the writers in San Francisco were kind of asking him questions about like him having to learn to soften up a little bit. Because <laughs> he's so, because he, you know, he's a former linebacker. His tendency is to be intense. Um, so he's he's one that I think would fall into that that category. Um, you know, uh, he, he's the one that sticks out. That's the one that, that I'm, I, there, I've I've looked at thirteen of these guys, and so some of it's running together. Sure, but that was the one that sticks out as like somebody who kind of had that reputation. I think there's a few more of them. Um, I think I think the biggest thing though is, and and this may have been, this may have been one of the things that that uh, hurt like uh, was if if you're not the fire and brimstone guy, you have to make sure you have to have those guys on the staff in certain in in the right spots, and I don't necessarily know um, if they quite replaced Sirianni was that guy. Right, Marcus Brady and Frank Reich were too similar in my opinion in that regard. Uh, and so I, I want, and so even if you're not hiring that guy, you like, it's gotta be part of the staff consideration of, uh, you know, do you have somebody else who's going to bring that if you're, if you're bringing more of the positive energy type of type of coach. Joel, last one from me. Um, do you think Chris Ballard and or Jim Mersey put any stock in last year? Six of the eight final coaches came from offensive backgrounds. 
of the Final Four teams last year, all four offensive background coach. This year, seven of the eight final teams offensive background. And again, all four left in the playoffs come from offensive backgrounds. Do you think Ballard and or Ursay put much stock into that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, obviously, the search hasn't gone. Like, it's not like Carolina where they have their interim coach and then everybody else is an offensive guy. Um, but it's it, it's a good question because I don't – all Ballard said was that he was open to offensive or defensive sides of the ball. But given that they're, we're expecting them to draft a rookie quarterback, given what the head coach can add uh, – even if he's not calling the plays, you know, like Nick Sirianni's not calling the plays in Philadelphia, but I think obviously him and Steichen are working pretty heavily together on the game plan. It's something that has to be taken into consideration. It's just the way the NFL has been trending. Like you said, it, it's 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 supposed to be a results-based business. In the last couple of years, the results say that offensive-based coaches have a, have a better chance of getting further. Um, but, I mean... I would guess, my guess would be knowing, or just talking to Chris Ballard in the past, that he would feel like a defensive background doesn't preclude you as long as you're going to hire the right kind of staff. Um, that's actually one of the reasons that Raheem Morris is interesting to me, too, is because he's kind of both, uh, which is which is a different kind of, which is a different background. Obviously, primarily defense, but spent, spent four years, I think, as a wide receivers coach in Atlanta. Joel, under Dan Quinn, this year and I've made this reference several times on this program, but this past year when I was calling the Indy 500, Marcus Erickson was a name that didn't have a lot of clout and cachet before winning the Indy 500. But when I went back and looked at the race and looked at my little flip chart that I do when I write down the top eight on restarts and stuff when I'm calling the turns, I thought to myself, you know, when he was the name, or he was the driver that was in the top eight the entire race. Other guys, you know, he, he wasn't in the lead the whole time, but he was just there the entire time. And and then he ends up winning the race. Give me the one coach that as you have been covering this coaching search, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's the guy you think may end up with the job or that you would put your money on, but you keep going back to him. And he keeps getting mentioned and he keeps seemingly surfacing as one that you can't overlook it would be who I, I think Morris falls into that category the head coaching experience when he was really young um there's there's been a push both publicly and privately you know, on his candidacy from Sean McVay uh the, the the experience on both sides of the ball uh McVay saying a lot of stuff about how Raheem Morris has been an advisor to him like in terms of you know markers that you're talking about that might slip through I think that's the kind of stuff that maybe people don't look at as much. But in terms of getting prepared and doing all that stuff, that that's kind of what feels like that to me. It's like he's he's spent a long time now in a lot of different systems rebuilding his resume after what happened in Tampa. And and then on top of that, he has he actually has the experience of, of having been in Tampa as a head coach uh, on his own, too. So I, I think that that's, he's probably the one that feels like that. He is team two-hour delay. Tomorrow morning, he is Joel A. Erickson uh, from the Indianapolis Star. Joel, I think you're going to get your wish. I don't know. I feel like sometimes when you get out into the you know, HSC school district, my, my mom actually used to teach in that school district, I feel like they cited a little bit more snow, flat-out snow day, than just the two-hour delay. Yeah, I, I I, don't know if I have a good feel for it over the last couple of years. I feel like... Uh, I don't we've had any this year, have we? No, there hasn't really been anything that would warrant it, um, and it's it's hard to remember. Uh, I I know I know the people making the call, and uh, uh, you know there's, they they do a good job. I have, I have to give a shout out to our, our road crew too because my brother's on the road crew here at Fishers, so um, they they do a good job out here with the roads. But I, I don't I don't know if I have a good idea of of which way it goes in terms of... Sounds like your brother's got, got some, some control. Tools. If he just oversleeps, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> roads don't get plowed, and we're going snow day. <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. Um, he's, 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 pretty, he's pretty big on the, on the clearing, though. He likes to have his section be, be you know, as, as good as it can sure. be. Sure. Well, it'll be something to watch, of course, tomorrow morning. Joel, thanks for the time, man. Yeah, you bet. Oh, his other advice is don't drive around snow plows. That's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I, 
let them control yeah, the roadways that, that tomorrow. Would be an yeah. Awesome gig. Follow I, I them. Would, I Thank would you, love Joel. It is a seven o'clock tip tonight. Pacers and Bulls. So after that four game road trip for Indiana, back at home, and then boy, they get out of here before the weather turns, and they go to Orlando uh, for a back to back coming up tomorrow night, and then back at Gamebridge Fieldhouse Friday to take on the Bucks, and then Sunday in Memphis. So kind of an interesting week with this back to back here against two teams below them in the standings, although I think Chicago might be tied after last night. And then obviously two of the best teams in the league coming up Friday and Sunday. To talk more about all of this, Tony East, Locked On Pacers, Forbes, SI.com, T East NBA on Twitter. He joins us now. Tony, I, I do want to talk about Miles Turner, Buddy Heald, trade deadline, all of that, which I know we've talked about a lot, but with the deadline nearing. It's good to focus there. Uh, but how about the latest on Tyrese Halliburton and this evaluation date that I believe was supposed to be Thursday? Yeah, we could see him yesterday at practice for the first time getting shots up. Um, and yes, I believe the, the two-week reevaluation date was two weeks from the 12th, which would be the 26th, which you are correct is this Thursday. But um, you know, he said last week, late last week, that he – had started running again, which is good news. Um, after having a knee thing, being able to, to run and get back into game shape is good news. And uh, Rick Carlisle told us yesterday in the media portion that uh, he was able to participate in a lot of the non-contact portions of practice, including doing some full court work. So it seems like the knee part of it, things are going pretty well. He's on the road to recovery there. But still, the, I think the elbow thing is, I don't know what the right word is, the, the, more, the, the one that will dictate his return date, I guess. But... He is getting some shots up now, which is good. That's the first time I've seen him do that since the injury. And uh, he, he said his his hope is early February, um, but it, you know it's ultimately up to, to you know medical staff and things like that. But if that's the case, it, it could be closer than, than further if that's if that's uh, up to him. Tony, do you believe that this losing skid has redirected in any way, shape, or form the Pacers' approach? to their retool slash rebuild? Uh, yeah, it kind of ha- has to a little bit, right? Like, if, if they were considering this season as any sort of, you know, playoff push kind of season, you know, we, we can we can make some small upgrades and, you know, be the sixth seed and this and that. That probably is off the table in your mind now, so I think it kind of has to you know, re- refocus your planning, right? I don't know if they were even thinking this way because all offseason – you know, the front office said, hey, we're, you know, we got this new long-term thinking approach and you know, we're not going to go you know, year by year or two year by two year or whatever. Uh, instead, it was, you know, and, and this really started last year at the trade deadline when they got younger with basically every move they made. You know, they're thinking big picture, longer term, and they're, they're two key core players are 22 and 20 years old, right? Like this, this iteration of the Pacers is not set to be at its best for another half decade, if that. Uh, you know, the, this stretch where they go from, 23 and 18 to 23 and 25 and in, in 10 days, you know, that, that has to change your focus to, you really have to maintain your long-term thinking. There can't be any small, smaller moves now that just add, you know, a veteran whose contract is shorter term. Doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore, right? You're not, you're not going to propel yourself into the postseason now that he and the Knicks are separating themselves in the standings. You know, that that's just not an option anymore. So can they still find upgrades that, are under contract for a long time or are going to be a restricted free agent and can be a long-term fit. Yes, that still is possible. It's still possible for them to be at the word. Everybody loves is buyer and get better. As long as the player they're buying is going to be around for a while. And it still, of course, makes sense to, you know, potentially if they wanted to be a seller and get, get assets for their, their veterans. And that's all easy, the easiest way to think long-term. But I think that the way they're thinking has to have changed is they can't be thinking, short term with any moves now it just it just doesn't make any sense given their record and spot in the standings again he's tony east um, t east nba on twitter he joins us here on the payless slickers hotline tony something that i've come come across and covering the colts now for a decade is like okay does this general manager or president do they rank other positions higher than others and in chris ballard's case he's made it very clear that he does not operate in that mindset you know I'll pay a running back. I'll pay a guard. I will pay a linebacker. I, I will draft those positions high. So I'll ask that same question for Kevin Pritchard, and I guess I'll preface it by saying I would assume he kind of is of the same thinking of Ballard based off how he's handled 
the big man position in years past. I mean, Turner and Sabonis, you kind of rode that out for quite a while. Obviously drafted Goga, you know, somewhat high as well. So have you ever got the inkling from Pritchard that, you know, maybe he doesn't value other positions positively or negatively like some others? Yeah, that makes sense that you know, he values them about the same. And I think that the thinking from some of the front office or just in general the team is like the way the NBA is trending is this. You know, the term is often positionless basketball, which I, I think is a silly way to think about it. But it's like if you, if you have skills in the NBA now with the way it's so spaced out and the way shooting is so important and if you can be mobile and, and shoot some threes, right? you, you can play any position and fit. right? You, you can – influence the defense or offense in, in a significant way. Like, the Cavs are, are doing great this year in the East, right? And they start two centers and three guards, right? There's very few wings on that team. Whereas other teams, you know, Toronto last year got the five seed, and they started four guys who were six foot nine, right? The, their, their team has, like, this whole media thing that called Project 6-9, right? Like, there's so many different styles now in the league, and the way it's trending towards just skilled players who can – space things out or be athletic and, and take space and seize opportunities and be good defensive players, right? It, it's, it's less about fitting into a rigid position group or being called a position out now. Being taller is still better in basketball. And there's a reason that the Pacers have you know, for forever been chasing a power four because being tall and mobile is as good as it gets it, it, with the way the league has played. So I think that there's still positions that they need that, you know, are, are, are in the traditional way. But I think that with the NBA trending towards this positionless basketball style where skills are more important than size and, and previous thinkings, you know, the Pacers are not necessarily ranking any position above another, but are instead chasing skills and fit and things like that. Tony, what player in this seven-game stretch, with Tyrese Halliburton being out and the Pacers kind of having to reshuffle the way they're mixing the drink, what player has missed on their opportunity? Is there anybody who has underperformed and it was like, man, that was really a good chance for them? That's a good question. You know, the the guy I think that's lost the most without Tyrese Halliburton is Buddy Heald, right? They have fantastic chemistry. Tyrese has said all the time he thinks that he understands Buddy than, better than any other player in the league. And, of course, for his whole career, they've been teammates, so that, that makes sense. But Heald is not playing as well without Halliburton around to you know set him up or understand when to get him the ball in one spot and at what time you know, they have fantastic chemistry but it's not like he's a guy whose skill set allows him to just you know step up and, and take over games in the absence of Halliburton. It's fine to re- it's the hard part is it's, it's really hard to find a player who who can do that very easily. So you know he's a natural guy that came to my mind when you asked that question just as a you know okay this guy is one of their best scorers outside of Tyrese Halberton, 17.5 points per game, wonderful shooter, and you know, he's had his first two games. He hadn't had a game before the injury where he didn't hit a three this season, and he's had two during the losing streak, right? So by default, you, you think of him as a guy who hasn't quite met the level that they need during this streak, although I think their new starting five, if they stick with it, which it seems like they will, with T.J. McConnell running the show, did get him ignited and got him involved. He had four threes in Phoenix and, and looked like the buddy he'll be seen for much of this season. The other guy I would I would uh, single out is Andrew Nambard, who you know, he, he's still a fantastic passer, has done a good job getting guys the ball and in their spots, and has plenty of assists during this stretch, but he can't quite get all the way to the rim on his drives all the time yet, so he can't really break down the defense in a way that Halliburton and McConnell can, and he's still learning the speed of the NBA. Like He, he played point guard his whole life, sure, but it's totally different to play it at the pro level when all the players are bigger, faster, stronger, you know, as every rookie has, has said for all of time. So I think he had those two games with Tyrese out on the first road trip where he played pretty well, but now that he's the full-time point guard and other teams can scout him and really prep for it, I think he's the guy that you know, has, it, especially in the scoring department, stepped up in a way that the Pacers have needed. They really need someone to run the show and get things organized and play well, and you know, Nimbard hasn't really done that besides having you – know, he he's had a couple – solid games mixed in there, but I think he's the guy that's been the furthest from what they've needed during the stretch so far. Tony, I'm admittedly having some reservations about potentially handing Miles Turner the contract extension that it seems like he wants and his camp is seeking. Uh, I, I don't I don't think there's any to deny that Turner is a very good player and an important piece for Indiana, and I would say one of the few disappointments of this season has been the young big guys not taking a step forward to maybe you could feel a little better about 
moving on from Turner, if you had seen more from Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith or Goga Batadze. Having said all that, uh, in your opinion, could you weigh out you know maybe the the pros and cons to giving Miles Turner uh, that extension? Yeah, they've been, look the the pro is that he's good and obviously right, and they they've seen that for years. But finally, this year, you know, he's always said he feels like he. He has not scratched the surface of his potential, and he could do more and really harness his skills. But this year, he actually has the chance and is seizing it, right? That's been something that for his whole career hasn't really been the case. Like, even games Sabonis would miss or, you know, Turner playing with the bench, he never really took advantage of the chance to show that stuff in the way he, did, he has this year, right? With more opportunity, with a roster that, that kind of fits his offensive skill set, with the scheme that it makes more sense for him. He's been really good career year in basically every number, right? And that's that's huge for him. There's a reason that we're even talking about this, right, is because he's playing so well this year. If he was averaging the same stats as last year or, you know, wasn't fitting in in the way that people presumed he potentially could, there's no way they'd be considering an extension, right? So the pro is that he's good and he fits with his core and, and defense at the five spot is massively important. But, yeah, hey, you're right You're right to say that there's there's got to be trepidation about, like, I read in one report that if the Aiton numbers are like a starting point for negotiations, you know, that's got to be scary for the Pacers, right? Like that's a ton of money to commit to anybody. Even Aiton, it was a ton of money to commit to a big man, right? And, and so uh, you know, thinking about the finances of what that means, especially when you know Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mathard are cheap for now, but very soon Tyrese Halliburton's payday is coming up, right? So it's not like they're going to have all this, this cap space to have all this flexibility forever, you know, if you commit to Turner, you're getting close to, okay, we don't have a ton of resources to really add to this team or transform it the way we maybe want to. So they have to be kind of cost-conscious still. And if, if he's the guy that they think is the perfect fit at the five, great. Then you go for it there and call it a day. But they have to be, you, know, you have to be careful with all of this stuff and uh, giving him a ton of money to, to go into his 30s at the five spot with, like I said, positionless basketball sort of coming to take over the NBA. They just have to be careful about, you know, what that could mean for their team long-term. Can you, um, and again, Tony East with us, uh, covers the Pacers for Forbes, SI.com, Locked on Pacers, a great daily podcast uh, on, uh, of course, the Indiana Pacers. Can you um, explain what that extension would look like from Indiana's point of view versus how other teams could offer Turner this summer? Yeah, this renegotiation extension thing is the reason that the Pacers have this this chip that no one else has, and it's really helpful for them prior to the trade deadline to say, "Hey, we could keep him." You know, you better up your price and things like that. Uh, but the way it works, uh, you know, some people have already heard this, but it's like because they have cap space this year, and because Turner has been a member of the Pacers for a certain amount of time, they're able to actually just straight up up his salary this season, right? Give him a raise while the season is ongoing, and that's extremely unusual. I think the last player that that had it happen to them was Robert Covington with the 76ers in 2016, I want to say. It's very rare that a team is has a veteran who's good, is good enough to want to keep them for longer, and has significant cap space to be able to raise their salary. And the Pacers are in that spot. So they're able to pay Turner more or, or even money than what he may project that he would get this summer in free agency, what that number is. You know, is that... 25 million a year, right? Is that a four four year, hundred million dollar contract? He thinks he can get elsewhere because you look at the center market. You know, Yusuf Nurkic signs for 17 and a half million per year. Uh, Mitchell Robinson signs for 15 million a year. Like he's better than those guys, right? You've got to think he would get you know closer to 20, 22 if that's the market out there for him. Uh, and he signed for 18 million, you know, four years ago when the salary cap was 108 million. Now it's going to be in the 130s. So. Uh, I, just based on that, if you if, even if you think he's the same level of player he was back then, just from a percentage of the cap perspective, he should be, you know, starting in the low twenties million. So four for four years for ninety million, four years for hundred million makes some sense. Just using those factors to kind of think about his money, so that they could like add some money onto his deal this year and then make it so the new money is is equal to that or more than that if they want to keep him. And no one else can give him that extension. No one else has the space to do that. So. They have an advantage in that they could give him the money that he might require before anyone else, but it's tricky with the mechanics and the timing to do that because then you, you can't trade him or you can't. You, that, that's it. Like you have committed to that path. So they have to consider all these things. March 1st is the deadline for that renegotiation. So we'll see what they actually end up on because there's a lot at play with this one. Tony, the Pacers, after playing tonight 
at home against Chicago. They go to Orlando, right, Kevin? Is that right? Yeah, uh-huh. back-to-back. So, Tony, if uh, you get a call tomorrow morning and they go, hey, we got a problem, um, the the flight was the, – the baggage was too much, so that we had to kick two guys off the plane and you've got to drive them to Orlando. And so it's your job to drive them to Orlando. Who do you think would be the two most fun guys to do the road trip with? Can I get to Orlando quick? How do the Pacers keep getting away with this, that the two snowiest days India's had all year <laughs> is playing Miami and Orlando? I was going to say, you might need to rethink who you bring. You might need to bring some shovelers. <laughs> I'm bringing the guys who have the best snow pants to help that's me right. yeah. make it. Goga. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll be ready. Uh, that's a good question. They've got – I've actually been asking a, I, asking a couple guys about this just because they've talked about the team environment being so – you know, perfect this season for what they're doing about who is the funniest guys on the team. And James Johnson gets a lot of love, and he's a really interesting guy. He's been in the league for a long time, played for a bunch of franchises. I would want him, although I think from a snow situation, you know, he, he lives in Miami. I don't know if that's necessarily the, the perfect pick. But I think I'd take James Johnson and Tyrese Halbert, and they have a great camaraderie. They're great for the team uh, in terms of connecting people and talent. I think they'd have a lot of fun, funny things to say and fun things to say. And uh, would be a good good way to use my time driving down to Orlando at a million miles per hour to actually make it on time. I, I would vote for T.J. McConnell. Uh, McConnell would be good. <laughs> I, I've guy, noticed- and I was fortunate to do the Thanksgiving um, you know, food giveaway with, with, with the Pacers and Wheeler Mission, and uh, T.J. McConnell was next to me, and we had, we had some great chats. Yeah, Fun dude. He has a different like handshake thing that he does with every guy on the roster, so you could tell that he has fun with that. He seems like I, O'Shea Brissett seems like he'd be cool. You know, he was the other one that that, that I was with, and yeah, little chill guy. I believe his, he has the same first name as Ice Cube. That's cool, right? Yeah, I think his significant <laughs> other is a Cowboys cheerleader. Really? Uh huh. That's well, correct. We might have to deviate yeah. through Dallas, right? Tony, anything on the Rui Hachimura trade front that you think impacts the Pacers? We saw the former lottery pick from Gonzaga move to the Lakers yesterday. Um, obviously, doesn't play the same position as Miles Turner, but any trickle-down effect or anything you found interesting with that deal? Yeah, Shams Trania reported that the finalists were the Lakers, Suns, and Pacers, right? So the interesting part there, obviously, is that the Pacers – were included and look he's a young power forward i suppose that makes sense so there's also a reason that the wizards are trading a former top 10 pick in lieu of other forwards so uh i wouldn't read read a ton into what the price was or anything there look i think that the lakers every time they do anything <laughs> there's a big microscope put on them just because lebron james is on their team but by trading for really they will now have less cap space next summer to actually sign guys so it's harder than to add to their team in the summer so they might be a little more inclined to make some trades during the season now, and they've been connected to the Pacers for time and time and time at this point. And I know the Russ trade is, has been Russell Westbrook trade has been discussed ad nauseum at this point. I mean, I suppose it goes from now like one percent likely to two percent likely or something like that, but it doesn't make enough sense for either team at this stage to actually do it. So the Lakers could be more active, I suppose, um, but I don't. I don't think that. In terms of any impact on the Pacers, if anything, the Wizards, who are behind the Pacers in the standings, got worse, right? So uh, in that way, maybe they're more likely to make the play, and maybe that's the most direct impact hit from this deal, but uh, not a ton of ripple effects, I, I think, from that one. I think the dis- if you factor in disparity between market size and marketability of a franchise, the Wizards are the most obscure franchise in the NBA. Like, you're playing in a big market. I don't even think people in Washington care about the Wizards, right? They don't care about the Commanders. Yeah, I mean, they're all like, ah, you know, I'm actually from Chicago. I'm a Bulls fan. I mean, you know, that's just my two cents on the Wizards for what that's worth. Uh, Tonight's – go ahead, Tony. They've probably been the worst managed team in the league for the last four or five years. I know. And remember, I mean, Bradley Beals threatening to leave. They had that little stretch there where they were playing the Pacers in the playoffs, and it was kind of like a little rivalry that was fun there for a year or two. But Gortat, that's a guy I'd like to drive with. He could shovel some snow. (laughs) There's no doubt. No doubt. Pet pig, Marcin Gortat. Tony, thank you. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me.